we are this morning continuing through the Gospel of John in our series, Come and See. Um, and, uh, you know, I was chatting with someone this week, and they said, we're, we're still in John 1, right? And I said, well, no. Um, and uh, we, we are going to be skipping uh, a little bit sometimes, uh, just because this is not going to be a, a comprehensive series in the sense that we will, at least on Sunday mornings, be reading and going over every verse. Uh, however, because of that, what we've done is we have put together a reading plan, and we want to commend that to you all, whether as individuals or as families or in your life group, um, so that you can be reading along throughout the Gospel of John, and then each Sunday, I'll be preaching from some section, excuse me, within that reading, and so uh, this week, I think if you go to uh, either the Church Center app or the webpage that's listed there, um, you'll see that that reading goes from uh, the last part of chapter 2 all the way through uh, to the end of uh, where we're going to be reading today in chapter 4, verse 42. Um, and so that is kind of the, the format and what you can expect, uh, at least on Sunday mornings, uh, for the weeks ahead. This morning, I do want to look at a story from the last part of that. We will not often uh, skip so much of the text from week to week, but it happens to be a little bit of a jump this week. And so I invite you to turn with us, if you would, to John chapter 4, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 all the way to verse 42. This is John chapter 4. We'll be reading starting in verse 1 and going all the way to 42. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have, have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirstier or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. 
for, the one, uh, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word, this beautiful gift of a message to us to let us know who you are, your great love for us, your character, and your mission to redeem us to yourself through your son, Jesus. I pray, um, just as John the Baptist did, here now that I would decrease so that you might increase, that your word to us would come alive and that you would teach and instruct us by your Holy Spirit, God, and draw us closer to you that we might understand and see and know and love better in a deep, abiding joy and life that you offer. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, what I want to really hone in on with this story of this woman at the well, and that's all that she is known by, the woman at the well, that it would instruct us a little bit in the way that we minister to others, and specifically this big idea that the good news of Jesus is for them too. The good news of Jesus is for them too. And that big idea there, that is left 
quite deliberately ambiguous. You might say, well, who is them? And it's a very big and broad category. And I hope as we go through today, you will be thinking of that Christ will bring to mind people in your life or categories of people in your life that fit into that them category. What I want to look at today in the context of John chapter 4, and as you read through this week in John chapters 3 and 4, I really want you to notice where this conversation comes. Namely, it comes directly after a conversation in John chapter 3 with a guy named Nicodemus. And as you read through scripture, I have, I have said this list before, and people complained that I said it too quickly or we moved on, so I made a slide this time. But as you read scripture, there are six things to look for. Look for things that are emphasized, things that are repeated, things that are related, things that are alike, things that are different, and things that are true to life. And what I really want to highlight, especially where this John chapter 4 comes in the text, is immediately after, this is groundbreaking, John chapter 3, I know, right? And there is a very kind of deliberate contrast that we're meant to draw. And so as we look at things that are similar and things that are different, we ought to compare this conversation with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, while Jesus is in Judea and in Jerusalem, with this woman who is a Samaritan in the village of Sychar in the region of Samaria. And there are a great deal of similarities between the two conversations and the way that Jesus is teaching and instructing and answering questions and engaging people who need to know the truth, the good news of who he is, the Messiah. But there are also some differences. And in fact, in this interaction with this woman, there are several sort of societal uh, boundaries that Jesus is crossing with this quite scandalous interaction with this woman. And that's what I want to talk about, the bulk of what we are going to look at in the text in John chapter 4 today, are these kind of boundary, uh, boundaries that Jesus crosses with this interaction with the woman at the well. And the first one that uh, Jesus crosses is a gender boundary. This is obvious, even when the disciples come, they marvel that he's talking with a woman. <laughs> because men and women did not interact in this way. And I also want to talk about a racial boundary here between Jews and Samaritans, and it is so much more than just ethnicity, but there are other differences in this interaction between a Jew and a Samaritan. And the final one, uh, in fact, the first one, and I've given these in reverse order for this reason because we're going to be tackling this one first, might be a little bit surprising to you. And it might be not what you expect because the, the first boundary that I want to look at is a socioeconomic boundary. It is this woman's place in society. Now, this might be unexpected because quite often, if you are like me, you've heard this story before, and maybe you have heard or understood or come to uh, make an assumption that this woman is morally corrupt. She is morally loose. She is sexually promiscuous. Here's the problem with that. 
We don't see that anywhere in the text. There is nothing in the text that hints at this notion that this woman is a sinful woman. I'm not saying she isn't sinful. I'm not saying she isn't that she's perfect or anything like that. What I'm saying is, as we read the text, there are certain clues that we get that tell us about this woman and what her place in life is. And far too often I hear people talk about what a sort of sinful, licentious, promiscuous woman this is. And yet, I don't see that anywhere in John chapter 4. And this is part of the bigger picture of John, of being invited to come and see. And remember that as we are coming and experiencing Jesus, John is inviting us to set aside all of the assumptions and preconceived notions and some of the loaded expectations that we have about who the Messiah ought to be, and instead inviting us to come and experience Jesus and encounter him on his terms. And so as we come to the text today, let's do that with open eyes and open minds. And here's why I think most of the time people kind of think of this as a morally questionable woman. I think that we are reading too much into the text. Now, Jesus is still crossing these boundaries, and the big idea is still true that the good news of Jesus is for them too. But this notion that this is a morally questionable woman, I think is reading too much of our own modern day cultural lens into the text. Here's what I mean by that. People are very caught up on the fact that she's out here at a certain time of day, and that she has five husbands and the one she's with now is not her husband. And I think we read that and we have in our minds modern day definitions of words like marriage or husband or with. And that is not something that we get from the text necessarily. And here's what I mean by that. She is called a woman, that's it. She is not called a prostitute, as some people would claim. She is not called a sinful woman, as we see elsewhere in the text. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus, uh, you know, confronts uh, these people, and there's a sinful woman, and, and we see, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner learned that he was dining with Pharisees. And that's how that woman is described. We don't see any of that in this text here. Nor, in fact, do we see any mention of sins. Quite often when Jesus is interacting with people, there's a discussion about sins. People are asking him, hey, is it because of his sin or his parents' sin that these... The word sin is nowhere in this chapter. And in fact, there are times when Jesus' discussion of sin go hand in hand with a miracle that he's performing. Think of Matthew chapter 9, when he says to this person, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven, and then he heals him. There is nothing like that here and now. Moreover, we don't see Jesus responding to this woman in a way that suggests she is sinful. There are plenty of other times in Scripture where as Jesus interacts or teaches or performs a miracle, he also has this word of instruction. Like in John chapter 5, where he says, see that you are well, sin no more. 
And he tells people, go and don't sin anymore. I'll give you one more later in John in chapter 8. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. It's very important to look at what details are included and what details aren't included. And we don't get any of this in this interaction. Jesus does not mention this woman's sin. He doesn't treat her as a sinner. The author does not call her a sinner. There is no mention of sin. And yet, here she is in the middle of the day. It's very specific. Remember, look at what details are included. About the sixth hour, meaning noon, it's right in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, when no one else would be there. No one is going to gather water at this time. Typically, it's a time when, uh, you know, the women would all gather together and they'd go to the well and they'd draw water and they'd talk about, you know, the events of the day and things like that. She is not there at that time. She's going in the middle of the day. And that's important. The wedding at Cana, when Jesus turns water into wine, we don't know what time it is. His conversation with Nicodemus, it doesn't give us the hour. It just says by night. But this detail is included. And so it makes us go, yeah, so surely there's something there with shame, right? Well, no, I don't think so. And also we have to ask ourselves, what is this notion of the five husbands? We get real hung up on this. Okay, what does this mean when Jesus says, and she agrees, you've had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. Remember, this is first century Judea and Samaria, where they are still following the laws of Moses, and their idea of marriage is very different than our idea now. And if you've been reading in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25, which I don't know why you would have, you know, maybe that was your quiet time this morning in Deuteronomy. Sure, great. Um, but you'll note the law of Moses set an outline for how divorce worked, and it was always, always, always at the initiative of the husband. The woman has no say in whether or not she gets divorced. In fact, because women were treated with far fewer rights and much less value than we would acknowledge and affirm today. In fact, in the culture of the time, women were sort of an extension of a man's property. A wife was someone who added something to a wealth, to a man's household. And he could say, yes, look at my wife. And if a wife is no longer pleasing him in some way, it was the man's initiative, not the woman's, whether or not he would divorce her. Moreover, we look at the kind of reputation we think she ought to have, and we don't see that. In fact, later on when she goes and she tells the townspeople, it's not like they go, oh, no, that's sinful. No, they listen to her. She clearly has some kind of a good standing with the people in the town, enough that they would listen to her, enough that they would be persuaded by her, enough that they would be drawn to come and listen to Jesus. So what is this notion of the five husbands? Well, if we keep looking at some of the Deuteron Deuter law from Deuteronomy, <laughs> we notice, you know what? Yes, it's a man's prerogative and maybe... Uh, you know, she's been someone that no longer pleased her husbands, and they issued a certificate of divorce, and they cast her aside. Or maybe, entirely likely, her husbands have all died, or some of them have died. 
And it was the duty of, of a, someone's surviving relative, often a brother, to then marry that woman, as an extent because women couldn't own property or have their own wealth or things like that. And it was for her protection. And so you can imagine, what if all five of these you know, husbands have died, and she is just going through this from man to man to man. And, and you get this sense that, like, she just can't hold a husband, that whether or not she wants these husbands, she is being passed around like someone's property. She is this discarded woman. She is someone that has seen disappointment and frustration her whole life from men. Uh, there's a, a, a friend of mine that I went to school with, um, was a missionary in China for years, and she is uh, almost 40, I think she'll be 40 this year, and she's unmarried, and one of the things that she said about life in China was from your like late 20s on, when women are not married, it is, there is social stigma. And in fact, there's a term for it, shang nu, literally leftover women. And this notion of like, hey, you're not married? Like, what's wrong with you? There must be something wrong with you. Can you imagine what that does to one's mindset? What that does to one's psyche? To feel like you're left over? To feel like you are discarded and not worthy of being held onto as a woman? And maybe this starts to paint a picture of why she chose to go to the well at this time of day. Why she made the decision to go. Not because people looked at her and judged her, but because people looked at her and they pitied her. Because people looked at her and they clucked their teeth and they said, oh, that poor thing. And by the way, that just gets exhausting after a while. And you can imagine her wanting to go to this well in peace by herself to just be alone. And here's some Jewish schmuck here asking questions. What's the deal with that? Maybe you've ever gone someplace intending it to be not popular. You know, uh, I, I often like to go to the store when it's not very busy, and I get very frustrated when it's like, oh, I go to this public place, and you know who's there? People. Oh. <laughs> and maybe this woman is just very frustrated. And in fact, you see this a little bit in this interaction that she has here with Jesus. And there is something in her tone, in this back and forth, in the way that she keeps kind of, she, she has a response for everything. Oh boy, she's got a retort for everything. Um, there's almost a, a sort of flippance in the way that she interacts with Jesus and the way that she says things to him. Uh, quite frankly, it reminds me of one of my sons. Uh, I'll not name him publicly, but if you've spent more than 90 seconds in conversation, you know which one I'm talking about. Um, but it's like, you'll get, hey, bud, can you go and brush your teeth? Oh, well, I was waiting for my brother to brush his teeth. You know, he's already done it earlier. I want you to go and do that now. Well, my other brother is in there, and he's brushing his teeth now. I know he's almost done, and I want you to go and be ready to take over so that we can go and do what's next. Well, I thought that we would do reading time first, and then I would brush my teeth just in case we had something sweet, and I didn't want to brush. Would you just go brush your teeth? Oh, my gosh. I don't mind telling you that your Lord and Savior has more patience than your pastor does. And so, Jesus, 
responds with patience and kindness and compassion. And every retort and every response and every smart comment that this woman has, Jesus just kind of serves it right back to her, like it's some ping pong match. You know, like, hey, give me a drink of water. Why would you ask me for a drink of water? Boy, if you know who I was, well, who are you? You're saying you're greater than Jacob? I give living water. Show me. You got nothing to draw water with. And you begin to see this woman who's been kicked around and discarded and marginalized and made to feel worthless, who is just desperately trying to get through and trying to survive. And here's some guy who's saying, hey, I can offer you the world. Hey, I can give you water that'll make you never thirsty again. And you have to imagine that she's thinking, you know, I've heard that before. I've heard promises from men before. I've heard big talk like that from men before. Why don't you show me what you got? Come on, yeah, let's see some of this water. And her tone is, step, is skeptical. And then suddenly, Jesus does something, not for the first time in John and not for the last time in John, where he has this sort of supernatural demonstration that he knows what someone is thinking where he understands what is going through her head. As she is thinking, I've heard that before, he says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. He says, I know. You've had five. And the one you're with now can't even be bothered to make it official. And suddenly, she is disarmed. And suddenly... Jesus, because he is in fact God, wrapped in human flesh. He does something that we see God doing over and over and over again, especially with the oppressed and the marginalized and downtrodden women all throughout history. And for centuries before this, there is a history of God coming to women in really low and desperate times. And I think of Hagar and Sarah and Hannah and Rahab and, and Ruth and Mary herself. And God comes and he says, I see you. I know the pain you feel. I really do. I understand. I get it. I know all of the ways that the world has let you down. And I am telling you, I am here inviting you to come and experience something better. I am here telling you, drink and thirst no more. And I am offering you something that the world absolutely could never satisfy. I've got living water. And he does this in such a way that compels the woman to say, hang on, this is different. This guy sees me. He knows what's going on. He understands something that I'm going through that nobody else does. I'm going to give him the time of day. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet, which is one of those like, you know, it's like saying, have you been to the Grand Canyon? It's big. <laughs> like, yes, that's true, but that's kind of an understatement, right? So much more than that. But she is disarmed, and she wants to hear more. And so she's saying, uh, you know, you worship on that mountain, and I worship on this mountain. What, hang on, what, what are we talking about? Mountains, suddenly? He was talking about living water, and you, now you, want, you think we're talking about mountains? What's going on here? 
And so here we need to back up and we want to talk about the second barrier that Jesus is crossing with this woman, a racial ethnic barrier between a Jew and a Samaritan. And this passage starts with this, this sentence, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if you understand the geography and the history of the place at this time, you might read this a little bit differently. He had to pass through Samaria. I want to try and give you an analogy and see if this makes sense. If I wanted to go to St. John, New Brunswick, and I look at that on a map, I see, you know what, that's pretty much directly east of us. I can kind of see which direction I would go from the blue dot to the red dot here. These are just screenshots from my phone. But you also are realistic and you understand that mountains and rivers and things get in the way, and so maybe it's not a direct shot and wherever the roads are, and you can imagine the kind of route that you would take to get to St. John, New Brunswick. But then when I search for directions, it goes like this. Sure, there's a fastest way to get to New Brunswick, but instead, what about a suggested way that is over an hour and a half longer? What's with that? Now, for those of you that did relatively well in high school geography, you understand what's going on here. There's another country in the way, all right? <laughs> Maine really gets in the way here, and so Apple Maps is saying you may want to just go around it entirely. You know, maybe because you don't have your passport, or maybe because it's just easier to not have to go through a border crossing and declare things, or maybe it's because there's a global pandemic and crossing through just for transit isn't allowed right now, or maybe Apple Maps is racist and they think, as Canadians, <laughs> You know, Canadians, famously ill-tempered, <laughs> hating others, would rather drive an hour and 45 minutes out of the way than ever come into contact with an American. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Did I hear an amen? <laughs> Love you guys too. <laughs> but here is the deal. As Jesus goes from Judea to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. But it's unusual that he is doing this because, as again, it's very understated in verse 9, Jews have no dealings with Samaria. Jews have no dealings with Samaria. If you look at the geography of the place, you can see he's going to Galilee. And to get up in the north of modern-day Israel, you might have to go from uh, Judea through Samaria. And yet, most of the time, Jews went through these areas that you see on the right side of the screen, through Perea and Decapolis, for that same reason, because they did not want to go through Samaria. There was plenty of cities, in fact, that's what Decapolis means, the ten cities, and, and there was plenty of infrastructure, there were places to stay, there were places where they could get food, and most of the time, they went around Samaria, but not Jesus. Jesus had to go through Samaria. And this is a statement not about the geography of it. This is a statement of mission and purpose. Jesus had to go through Samaria. 
And Samaritans and Jews have no dealings with one another. Very, very big understatement. Jews and Samaritans despised one another. Now remember, in the north of Israel, for years and years, you had these 10 tribes, and that became the kingdom of Israel, separate from the kingdom of Judah. And Israel was carried away into captivity by Assyria. And Assyria took a very unique approach to, you know, to, uh, um, they, they assimilated people. They said, we want you to stay where you are, but we're going to intermarry and kind of mingle the blood, so to speak. And Jews really didn't like this. They thought of Samaritans as sort of half Jewish at best. No, they're kind of a mixed breed of folks. And when the Jews returned from their exile with this sort of pure blood that they had, they try and rebuild a temple. And yet the Samaritans, the people that are in the land, if you recall from our study of Haggai, in the book of Haggai and Ezra, there is opposition. They're the ones that say, no, you don't need to build this temple. We already have a temple. Let's not do it. It's this mountain, not that mountain. And this is the reason why the work stalls out for over 15 years. And in fact, hundreds of years later, in 112 BC, there is a, a, a leader in, in Jerusalem that destroys the temple on Mount Gerizim because that is the, the level of animosity between Jews and Samaritans. They hate and despise one another. And they each think their temple and their mountain is the right one. Their way of worship is the right one. We are the true heirs of God's promise to Israel through Jacob. And so there is this animosity. And this is exactly where Jesus goes through, because he had to go to Samaria. And as we zoom into Samaria, to this village of Sychar, you see that Sychar is this place that has a history. Jacob's well is there. This is land that was given to Joseph, and that's why the Samaritans had settled there and made it their sort of hub. And it is literally in the foot, in the shadow of Mount Gerizim. And there you can go and visit this well today. I mean, it's a Greek Orthodox church that's been built around it. And you can see and look up at Mount Gerizim. This is where they are. And so when she says, we worship on this mountain, you can even picture her literally gesturing to the mountain right there in the landscape. And she is finally convinced, and she wants to talk about this relationship between Jews and Samaritans. And she's saying, okay, sure, you're a Jewish man. You have clearly earned your right to say something to me. You see me. I, I perceive that you're a prophet. So let me get this straight. You're trying to convince me not to worship on this mountain, but you want me to worship on that mountain? Is that what you're saying? And Jesus almost, you know, just kind of says, listen, I... This is not about what mountain we're going to worship on. I am not trying to persuade you to become a Jew. I am trying to tell you the Messiah is here. I am trying to tell you this God that you worship, whether on a mountain or by this well or anywhere, is sitting in front of you in the flesh. As if if Jesus returned today, we would be going, I really hope he comes and sets up worship in our church. Or is it going to be the Pentecostal church? Or is it going to be the Baptist church? Or is it going to be the Presbyterian church? Or is it going to be the United? What, church? what are you talking about? 
Jesus is here. This is a whole radical new paradigm. And Jesus is saying, forget the mountains. God is here in front of you. And we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And far too often as we read scripture, we do so trying to kind of shoehorn truth into our religious tradition, into our perspective. We're trying to say, well, here's why I can see Jesus would absolutely be on my side and why he would you know, ridicule them. Here's why it's so clear Jesus would come to my church and not their church. He'd come to my event and not their event. And that is what this woman is thinking of. She's saying, okay, so, so you're saying this isn't the true one, you want the true one? Which side are you on? And the truth of it is, Jesus didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. Jesus came to say, hey, I'm here. You don't need to wonder, listen. Come and see, experience me, drink of this water and thirst no more because the good news of Jesus is for them too. Notice he's not afraid to correct her though. He's not afraid to let her know, listen, there are some things that I think the Jews have right and the Samaritans have right and some things that we have wrong because there is a truth that the gospel compels some parts of every, uh, of every culture and every religious practice to be conformed to the image of his son. And that is true. But here is the deal. We are not reading the Bible well when we look for it to just try and justify the things that we already believe and practice and adhere to. And that's where Jesus is really challenging her dynamic. Finally, the third barrier that Jesus crosses is this idea that she's a woman. And this is obvious. Just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Oh my goodness. Because men and women did not interact in this way. And yet, Jesus, like God so often does throughout Scripture, goes out of his way to engage with and encourage and affirm this woman. And in fact... The good news that he gives to her because the good news of Jesus is for them too. He immediately empowers her to tell other people. Do you know what that is? That's preaching the gospel. And in fact, that is what she does. When he says, it's me, I'm here, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the word made flesh to dwell among you. She says, I get it. And she goes and she tells everybody that she knows. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Because she comes and she says, come and see this guy who told me everything. Come and see this guy who is the Christ. Come and see this man who is offering living water so that we may drink and thirst no more. I got to get going. I'm really sorry. Oh, man. Okay, we're going to blow through this last part. (laughs) Good news of Jesus is for them, too. Let me me just skip to our our so what here. (laughs) I think that the so what comes from the same place that we looked at last week. In the same way that Jesus was the word that became flesh, the incarnation, And that ought to, as an example, compel us to minister in an incarnational way, a ministry of presence. 
I think the way that Jesus crosses these social and cultural boundaries to proclaim the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, ought to be an example for us too. And so I have kind of four thoughts here. The first is we, we absolutely need to read scripture with eyes wide open. We need to far too often set aside the expectations and the assumptions and so much of the baggage that we have in coming to the text and come and see, come and experience and learn who Jesus is on his terms. The second is that we should absolutely have a ministry to the marginalized. We should always be on the lookout to those people who are hurting, those people that feel cast aside and discarded and worthless. We too need to look at these people with the eyes of Jesus and to say, I see you and you have value not because of what you've done or who you've married or what your bank account is. You have value because you are made in the image of the living God. And that's why we love you because Jesus loved you. We should always have a ministry to the marginalized and incorporate that into the way that you do uh, you know, your, your life in your neighborhood or with your coworkers or with your life group and the way that you are inviting people in and ministering to marginalized and hurting people. Third is ministering cross-culturally. And I don't just mean this in the same way that the difference between the Jews and Samaritans was not simply ethnic. There were religious factions at play here. We need to have a better understanding of the way that we minister to people who are different from us, who see the world differently, who read the Bible a little differently, whose worship and prayer and practice and teaching is a little different than us. And I just as Jesus was not afraid to correct, just as Jesus was not afraid to point out where people were right and wrong, and he did this with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, the same way that he did with a woman Samaritan, we can still engage with people. We can still celebrate that which we espouse in common, that Christ is Lord, and only by him can we drink of living water and thirst no more. The only way to be made right with God is through Jesus. And how often we do communion and how we baptize people and who gets to stand and how we sing and all of this stuff. You know what? We can still agree on some things and we can still engage with people and not always point out that, the, that we disagree. I really struggle with this myself. I always want to be like, listen, you know, even though we don't agree on every, you know, just as this caveat, just so you know, look, let me just tell you right now, not everyone who is on stage here or that comes here uh, or that worships with us or, or uh, you know, that, that adds to the discourse in this community agrees with me 100%. Many of you don't. We're about to discover that as well. Because the final thing that I want to talk about is this notion of Jesus affirming and elevating women. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. This is, for me personally, an area where I have changed the most. Not in my, my theology, but in my sort of religious perspective and practice. And I grew up in a tradition, and I went to school in a tradition, and I served and was employed in churches for years in a tradition that was not always very affirming to women. 
that in fact, you know, would use the label complementarian, because women have these roles and men have these roles, and that's all well and good, but what it boiled down to was men in, in positions of authority saying to women, you can't do X, Y, and Z. And what changed was not that, you know, I didn't read some Gloria Steinem book or see the Barbie movie. What changed <laughs> was reading God's word. I went to Bible school and I was trained to look, to extract meaning from the text, to set aside some of the baggage and the assumptions that I had about what it taught and read, and more and more and more, I saw a God who was crossing these boundaries, who was moving heaven and earth to push and nudge and make people a little uncomfortable in the way that he engaged and affirmed and elevated women. And I went from a place where I absolutely agreed with that other perspective to a place where I wasn't so sure, to a place where I went, you know, I, this makes me uncomfortable to a place where I went, you know, I, I know that I disagree, but I can still work here and we can agree to disagree and that's okay. Finally, to a place where I went, I'm no longer comfortable being in this place where I feel like my teaching is going to contradict the practice of the church and that's hard for me. So I left my country and fled to Canada. Uh, <laughs> um, I have gotten to this place where I feel, not, not because of cultural or social pressure, but because as I read the text, as I read and discover who Jesus is, I see this sense of saying we have to affirm women in our worship, in our practice, in our ministry, and don't for a moment, uh, like I'm so deeply uncomfortable doing this as a man standing up and saying, here's what women need to do, like it's mansplaining. Mans do you know what mansplaining is, ladies? It's when someone, no, I, but to say, listen, and I, this is not the doctrine of the church, okay? This is not anything that we have, you know, this is an area that many people disagree on, and I invite disagreement, and I encourage good engagement with this. I've gone way over time. If you guys want to sit or rest, take a drink, I, it's fine, I'm sorry but I'm just letting you know where I stand and why it is that I say these things because as I look at scripture and I look at the model and the example set by our Lord, not just here, but all throughout scripture, I see the truth is that without women who preach the gospel, no Samaritans in Sychar would have come to know Jesus. How about this? Without women who preach the gospel of Jesus, we would have no news of the resurrection. That's a little spoiler alert from chapter 20. I didn't mean to spoil the ending. Still read it, okay? But I am saying, as I read through and I see a God who says the good news of Jesus is for them too, I want to be in a place where the gospel is preached and we empower people in a way that Jesus empowered people. And as I read through the way that Jesus looked at people and he cared for them and he cut through all of the other noise and he said, you are a child of God and I want to offer you living water. 
and all of the ways that the world has let you down, and all of the ways that you have heard that before, and all of the ways that people have made promises and they have turned out hollow and empty and disappointing, I am telling you, I see you. I know what you have been through. Come and drink and thirst no more because the good news of Jesus is for them too. God, we pray that you would move in us to love people that are far from you, to love people that are hard to love, to love people that are different from us, who do things differently and in different ways. God, I pray that we would always err on the side of being gracious and compassionate and loving. I pray that we would earnestly seek you that we would get to know you on your terms, that we would be your hands and feet as we proclaim this truth of the one, the only one, who offers us a drink that we may thirst no more. And I pray that you would be lifted high in this place. We pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.